Welcome to Hello Climate Calling, the climate change podcast by the Embassy of Finland in London and the British Embassy in Helsinki. In this podcast, we're looking for solutions to climate change and exploring approaches to it from two countries, Finland and the UK. I'm your host, Noora Mattila. Today's topic is climate diplomacy, and we have two diplomats right here as our guests. From Finland, we have Mr. Jan Wahlberg, who is working as the ambassador for climate change at the Ministry for Foreign Affairs here in Finland. Hello and welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Nora. And from the UK, we have Dr. John Merton, who is the COP26 envoy for the government of the UK. Good morning. So I heard that you actually have kind of met online before in a so-called Thursday night club. Is that right? That is true, Nora. I'm an honored member of Thursday Night Club, and I, and I think uh, it looks very familiar because John has the background of COP26 in his his background. So I don't know when he's in the countryside or in London, but we do meet quite regularly, actually. Yes, I like this name, Thursday Night Club. What happens in this club? It's a chance for uh, people like Jan and I to get together and just share views about how we can make Uh, a success of of our work in terms of climate diplomacy generally, but also more specifically as we look towards COP26. Before we go deeper into that, we'll start this podcast by giving you a chance to ask a question about each other's home countries. Is there something you always wanted to know about the UK or Finland or something that really fascinates you about each other's country that you would like to know more about? You mentioned we are both diplomats, so I would like to ask how come British diplomats are always so skillful? I've been admiring because my previous work was a lot in London and when the UK used to be still part of the system. And and, and I think, uh, I don't know how you do it. You said you have a bigger team than I do, but is there something in British diplomats training that makes you such good climate diplomats and diplomats in general? That is a very nice question. Well, fl- flattery will get you on everywhere. Um <laughs> Do you know, the funny thing about the UK diplomatic system is we don't have any formal training. Uh, so if I compare myself to my German colleagues, they have two years of formal training before they're allowed to start as a diplomat. We uh-huh. have no formal training. We have a two-week training course that teaches us how to unlock safes and how to use the computer system and where the coffee machine is. But actually, our, our training is much less formal. So we are always learning on the job. And I think that gives us a flexibility of approach that can sometimes be quite useful. That must be kind of good for the world of diplomacy as well, that people come from maybe like different kind of angles. John, do you have any questions about Finland or some uh, favorite things about Finland? Um, well, my big curiosity as we face winter now in the UK and it's getting colder outside is I I just want to know how you cope through your long winters. Uh, and we not don't. <laughs> <laughs> Like Nora said, we don't. I think <laughs> Finns are very different persons. When you come here during the summer, we are we are happy and we spend long lives. And when you come here in the winter, it's a little bit slower. But uh, we cope. It's it's warm, warm houses, and also I think which is not nice, but perhaps due to climate change. Like when you look at last winter, there was not too much snow in Helsinki. It was actually mm-hmm. quite warm. So so we know like the Arctic is, is I think the increase of temperature is twice as much as globally. So. Perhaps we are hitting the heat wave here, uh, which is not a good thing. Yeah. Well, we will be talking about climate diplomacy, among other reasons, because we are one year away from COP26, the world's most important climate change conference. 
In this episode, we'll discuss what is happening before that meeting in Finland and the UK, and overall, what part do diplomats play in stopping climate change? Jan and John, we are recording this at the end of 2020. What kind of year has this been in your work? Because it's been quite an unusual year. For me, it's been a very particular year because I started as climate ambassador during the COVID lockdown. So actually my first close colleague, I met them only in August. Also, I think when you look at the news and then what people discuss about, it's been very monothematic year. People talk mm-hmm. about COVID. So so we forget about the big themes like climate change. And we forget, I think, how much is being done and how how hard we work. You mentioned COP26. It's been delayed one year, but I think we are taking full advantage and making the, the, the COP even better. That is actually good to hear because when you look at media, you might wonder, like, is anybody addressing climate change like in the meantime? Because you might not see news about it. But you're saying like hard work is happening all the time. Do you think in the tables where decisions are made, is climate change there? Like, are actually important decisions made this year? I think definitely, like, for example, the news from East Asia, where I used to be, my last postings, China came up with the carbon neutrality target for 2060. And a little bit after that, uh, Japan and Korea did the same for 2050. And I think if it would be a normal news world, this would be making big news because it's a big climate topic and the things are there and the negotiations are going on. Yeah. Would you also, John, say that it might be an advantage that COP26 was postponed by a year? I mean, obviously, it was a disappointment to have COP26 postponed due to COVID because we've been busy preparing to to hold COP. But I think in retrospect, we will see that it's probably been a blessing um, because the fight against COVID is is one that's demanded international cooperation, international uh, team working, learning from each other as we learn how to tackle the virus, learning um, from each other as we develop vaccines. And um, That's been a really sort of a unifying force. Uh, We've all learned to work together uh, and we've achieved things through the fight against COVID that we might not have thought possible. If if you'd have told me at the start of the year that I would be working effectively with my team based all around the UK and several of them outside of the UK and we'd be doing all our meetings remotely, I'd I'd have laughed at you. And I'm confident if you just look even uh, at the figures coming out just yesterday from the International Energy Agency, It forecasts that 90% of the electricity that's added to the global grid this year will be renewable energy. And so the transition is moving really fast. Even just this year in the UK, um, sales of zero emission vehicles have overtaken sales of diesel vehicles. Things that we wouldn't have thought possible just 12 months ago and are happening. Yeah, some talk about this green growth after the pandemic, that somehow we could recover from this in a sustainable way and at the same time advance actions against climate change. I think you're very right. And, and, and Joint was pointing to that direction. I think it's, uh, I used to be annoyed when my team was producing uh, speaking notes for myself or for our ministers in the beginning, when we were saying that COVID is, almost saying that COVID is an opportunity. Right. But uh, that's the silver lining of COVID. And I think John was describing it. Like, for example, EU climate ambassadors, we have almost weekly meetings. And in before times, I think we would have been flying to Brussels with all this CO2 emissions and, and, and all the hustle, the time we waste and that. So we are learning new methods. Also, I think one aspect there is that uh, if you look at all the kind of recovery plans we need to make and all the money we need to spend in order to recover economically, we own to the future generation and the young people also that we recover with green methods. And then we, we are not going back 
to kind of old fossil fuel, this is an opportunity for us. We call it in our jargon, built back better and greener. We have uh, had a lot of discussions between the Nordic development ministers, for example, and we have even developed a little narrative of, of how to build back better and greener. Obviously, you know, the COVID pandemic has been a terrible experience in all our countries, mm-hmm. uh, but we have to take positives where we can. And as Jan says, it's pointed us to how we can work differently. And also it's given us the experience of, of what a, a lower emission world would look like. So because energy use, energy demand in the UK has fallen through the periods of lockdown, we've mm-hmm. seen renewable energy form a much larger percentage of our electricity supply this year than in previous years, because at times of low electricity demand, it's always cheaper to run renewables than to buy coal and put it in a coal-fired power station. So it means that this year, for example, the UK ran for almost three months without using any coal power in the summer. All of this is making me quite hopeful. <laughs> But um, I have to ask, though, like this last climate conference was COP25 in Madrid. That became the longest in record. And some questions there were left unanswered and kind of left for this next conference. What kind of negotiations are you expecting this time? And what kind of diplomacy will it require? So that's a good question. And I think it's important to to sort of give listeners a sense that actually the nature of these climate conferences is changing. Yeah. So you remember um, COP16 in Copenhagen. The whole point of COP16 was to try and find a new global deal on climate change that replaced the Kyoto Protocol. And in Copenhagen, they didn't succeed. And then again, in Paris, five years later, they, they were trying the same thing and they succeeded. So they got 197 member states of the UNFCCC to sign a, an agreement, uh, which committed every country to taking action on climate change. So it was a sort of strong treaty in that it was very wide, but it was potentially you know, unproven strength in terms of its depth because the commitments every country made were voluntary. So the job we have at Glasgow is not to conclude a new agreement. Our task is to prove that the existing Paris agreement can work and encourage every country to be more and more ambitious in the targets they set themselves for tackling climate change. There are still negotiations that will need to take place in Glasgow, but those relate more specifically to elements of the Paris rulebook that are yet to be agreed and some other ongoing mandates. They're not the sole definition of whether COP26 is a success or not. Indeed, where we'll more likely be judged is on have we been able to persuade countries around the world to set really ambitious climate targets, both for the long term, like we've seen in China and Japan and Korea in recent months, but also for the shorter term, looking out to 2030. And that's why you see, for example, the European uh, Commission has set out proposals for the European Union to, to cut emissions by 55% from 1990 levels by, by 2030. And we're working in the UK on our own ambitious NDC. We're the first country and in major industrialized economy in the world to have set a net zero target that Jan was talking about. And we're working out how we achieve our net zero target. Um, and we need to show that we're doing that at home so that we can go and persuade other countries that it's in their interest to do these things as well. Right. So in part, it's about uh, setting an example also. Yeah, I agree with John. It's basically the big exercise. It relates to kind of what we call the long term strategies. And that's the 2050 goals, basically. And Finland had a role because we do it within the European Union. We have EU members. It was a difficult uh, discussion, but we managed to make the European level goal on 2050. There is still some discussion on, on how to make the just transition and how 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 we we do the EU funding so that everybody can come and join the goal. And then, as John mentioned, what's now 
most on the agenda. This autumn is what we call nationally determined contributions. And that's more like the shorter term, so to say. So we are looking for 2030 goals. The important thing that's helping us is not diplomacy, <laughs> but actually it's the changing economics of all of this. So the net zero targets that countries have been setting are really important because they give confidence to investors that our economies are on a trajectory towards a low carbon economy. And in that context, it makes sense for investors to invest in, in low carbon technology and low carbon growth. And you start then getting a snowball effect. And we've seen this over the last five years, that as the volume of investment in solar and wind and, and other forms of renewable has grown, so the costs have to come down far faster than we ever thought possible. Yeah. And I was also going to ask you, like, what kind of role climate diplomacy has in all this puzzle of solutions to climate change. But I think John kind of answered that, that your role is almost to start the snowball and then like economy and technology will have to kind of answer the challenge that you set. Would that be right? Yes, that's correct. I think that's our job. And it's also um, in a way to make the dynamics that John was so well describing, make them global. The big emitters, what we would call, they also need to become part of the global games. Mm -hmm. Maybe I can give a bad analogy, which probably reveals my misunderstanding of the Scandinavian concept of sauna. But you know, <laughs> as I understand it as a Brit, you have your sauna in, in your nice sort of hot sauna, and then you jump into a freezing cold lake together. And, <laughs> um, and, and we know that's good for you, right? And it's good for you in the long term. But if you're a Brit like me, the thought of jumping into an icy cold lake is a bit scary. So you might need to sort of hold hands with some of your friends and jump in together to have the confidence to do it. And it's a little bit like that with taking climate action. You know, it looks a little bit daunting, but we know it's good for us in the long term, both economically and, of course, for the planet. Uh, so we need to sometimes, the work of diplomacy is to help us all join hands and jump together. Uh, and, and I give you a good example, which we're working on for COP26, is we're trying to accelerate the transition to zero emission vehicles. But if we can work together, and we've set a date in the UK, we'll phase out um, the sale of, zero, of petrol cars by 2040. And we're looking with other countries to bring that forward, because if we can all bring that forward, we'll send a clear signal to the, the motor manufacturers to invest in this new technology. And that will, of course, will make it cheaper, quicker. That's, you know, I was saying Brits are good diplomats. It reminds me of the COP campaigns. I think John and his team, they have five different sectors and one is uh, traffic And I think you have the hand of all the Nordic countries. We're still seeing when and how Finland will become part of the COP campaign, but that's how, how the climate diplomacy works. You make a campaign and then you, you rally around the countries and then we jump together in the, in the cold, uh, cold water. In a moment, we will discuss more about the nature of climate diplomacy, but first, let's hear how embassies around the world can play a part. The residence manager at the British Embassy in Helsinki, Melanie Lafni, is leading the embassy's plan on eliminating avoidable single-use plastics. Here's Melanie about the climate actions done at the British Embassy in Helsinki and their plans. When I joined Elbasa May 2019, um, early that year, Um, before I joined the embassy, they started a green team. And the reason was because they wanted the embassy to be more sustainable and leading up to the COP26 event, which will be in Glasgow. It's really important that we play a central role in being more environmentally friendly and sustainable. 
Uh, one of the first projects I worked on in the Green Team was to get rid of avoidable single-use plastics. So all British embassies around the world were looking for what they called a hashtag beyond plastic champion. So I volunteered myself to be R1 in Helsinki with the goal of getting rid of avoidable single-use plastics by the end of 2020. And we've done a very, very good job. So in all of our events, we don't use avoidable avoidable single-use plastics anymore. And it's actually, originally, I thought that might be a bit more expensive, but actually it hasn't turned out that way. So it's absolutely possible, even for the larger events. In September 2019, we had a breakfast morning where we invited embassies into our residence and we just uh, shared some of our best practices, what we've been doing, and the response was really, really great. We learned that quite many embassies don't have a green team and after this they said okay this is something we absolutely have to do so we actively share all of our ideas now and have some things coming up in the future where we'll work together to to promote uh, sustainability and being greener. I think uh, embassies are in a very uh, unique uh, situation within a city that they can have a lot of influence on the way people live their life and they can it's kind of one of their roles to set an example. You were telling us about the role of climate diplomacy and what kind of effect it brings to the society. John, you mentioned that the nature of these conferences has changed. How is the mood around it now? Like, is the conversation heating up or are we like closer to uh, international consensus, if you could ever talk about something like that? I think that over the last few years, the conversation has changed quite quickly. Yeah. In the sense of a lot of senior policymakers, a lot of leaders around the world are suddenly realizing that actually the green economy is an opportunity. Traditional vehicle manufacture will be overtaken by zero emission vehicle manufacture. And, you know, the traditional coal or gas uh, electricity generation will be overtaken by wind and solar and, and battery storage. So there's all these opportunities out there. And I think countries are beginning to realize that it's not so much a cost of moving towards climate change. It's not something that we, you know, we can't afford to do. Actually, it's something we can't afford not to do. Mm. But is climate diplomacy like picking up the same pace? Because maybe it could be like things in companies and innovations are like sometimes happening quite quickly and the market could be quite dynamic. But looking at it from the outside, sometimes in climate diplomacy, it always seems like, well, let's wait another year. Yeah, I, I, look, I think that the changes that we're seeing have begun to gather momentum quite recently and they've gathered momentum in certain innovation centers. So part of our work is to basically explain that these things are happening and draw a closer connection between what's happening in the real world, in the real economy and in the negotiating chambers so that actually we we change the dynamic and we accelerate the transition. Uh, because although that transition to a low carbon economy is happening, it's not happening fast enough at the moment to meet our climate goals, and we need to accelerate it. And Jan mentioned our campaigns. If you look at, say, zero emission vehicles, you don't need to work with every country in the world to achieve that. If you work with China, the EU, and California, you account for half of global vehicle sales, just those Mm. partners. So what you can do is get those countries to set more ambitious targets, and that will change the landscape for every motor manufacturer in the world. So if we talk about this climate diplomacy and not the real world, like you said, John. Uh, What kind of obstacles are there when making ambitious international deals? What slows it down? 
you know, every economy in the world has people who are employed in certain sectors. And if there's going to be a change, for example, away from oil and gas and coal towards renewables, people who work in those industries will be affected. That can be a break on progress, because if a political leader in a given country gets their support from that community, then it can be quite difficult to convince that leader to take that step um, because it will undermine their own support base. So what we need to work and think about is how can we persuade countries where leadership derives a lot of their political support from these traditional sectors and help them to move faster towards the new economy? One concrete example we are looking now with minority colleagues would be having a climate dialogue with Saudi Arabia. And we are planning, and I think it's very meaningful because it's also, it is the region, perhaps the Middle East, that really suffers the climate change because it's a hot climate to mm-hmm. start with. And, 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 and it's a big transition for them. So I think it's an important dialogue to start with, in this case, the Nordics and the Saudi Arabia. And start to discuss about renewables. How do we get there? So not only kind of uh, have the climate dialogue between countries that are very like-minded, like UK and Finland, but also have have kind of uh, webinars and dialogues with with the other countries. We are also doing with the Nordics. Uh, perhaps will be in March, but kind of a dialogue with China, and I think that's also very meaningful. Finland is a small actor alone, but I think if we take our Nordic friends, we can make meaningful seminars and then kind of. Uh, show that that how how climate is embedded in our education and in our DNA and and, and, and kind of uh, bring the climate diplomacy message around the world. So I think it's uh, very much believing in, like what John was saying, that, that the societies need a societal change so we can kind of encourage with our own example that, that this is possible and we can do it together. Who do you think they are that you need to convince or like what kind of things are you addressing in these discussions? Uh, I think it's very much kind of, uh, you need to be always very sensitive on where and which continent you are working with. Mm-hmm. For example, now we are looking at the moment that's more like bilaterally finished, but and, and through development aid on Africa. And there we feel that we need more money on adaptation, more projects mm-hmm. on, on, on kind of uh, employment for the youth and, and, and the role of the women and, 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 and kind of forestration. But then if we have dialogue with China, for example, Perhaps it's more on kind of uh, what are the modern technologies, what are the, the, the electrical vehicles, the batteries. And then also in China would be one problem. I would call it a problem. It's the it's the fossil fuels and the coal power that they need to get out of that. So I think we need to be very sensitive of the needs and, and, and kind of the strengths and weaknesses of our partners in each dialogue. So I think it cannot be one one size fits for all climate diplomacy, but it's, uh, it's a very much... Uh, depending on, on, on the situation of the country. Yeah, yeah. Jan raises an important point about, for example, there are a lot of countries, small island states uh, that are very low-lying, who you know, places like the Marshall Islands look set to be overrun by by rising sea levels in, in the not-too-distant future. For So mm. in those countries, there's a lot of concern, not just about reducing emissions, but also helping countries, helping economies and communities to adapt to the climate change they are already experiencing. Finland is running for United Nations Human Rights Council next year. The elections will be in October 2021. And we very strongly feel that climate is a human right. So I think it's one of the spearheads of our campaign that will be launched next year. It, it's the discussion of trust and transition, the problem of the small island states. And, and I think that's something we want to bring to the UN fora, kind of the whole topic of climate as a human right. I think it's very important, as John was pointing out.
Next up, we'll hear from the head chef at the Embassy of Finland in London, Sarah Jasmina Musabi, who gives us some examples of climate acts done in everyday life at the ambassador's residence in London. We have a couple different things that we do at the moment towards the Concrete Climate Change Act uh, here in London. Uh, the biggest one, I think, is that the ambassador himself wants to follow a pescatarian diet. That means that we only use vegetarian and seafood um, on our menus and dishes. Sustainability over choosing the ingredients is one of the main things, I would say, uh, especially because last year, 2019, uh, we had the EU presidency and sustainability was the main one of the main themes. Um, so we think it's very important to keep up with that team uh, now and in the future. What I personally do towards the climate um, is no food waste. I, I think it's one of the, maybe probably the biggest thing that you can do is minimize your food waste. Um, and I think it starts from all the way from planning the menus and planning the dishes. Um, being smart from the beginning, I think, minimize all the food waste. That was it from the Embassy of Finland in London. So, Jan and John, you're representing here Finland and the UK. What do you think we could learn each other in terms of climate policies? Do you think there are some things that uh, where the UK is kind of a forerunner and Finland is looking up to the UK in terms of climate change? Uh, quite a few things. I, I learned talking about kind of the, the green embassies, for example, that the UK embassy here in Helsinki from, I think, 2009, they have kind of concrete guidelines from the government how to become green and how to act. And I think in Finland, we are still kind of looking at the more kind of robust tools in how, how to make our embassies green. Or, or So I, I think I very much admire kind of the British way of, of making it to, to kind of, uh, I think you are the first country, for example, that has in the national legislation the the carbon neutrality 2050. It's in the British law. So mm-hmm. I think I, I kind of would like to copy more of the systematic thing of, of British are not only good diplomats, but they are also good lawmakers, I think. So so make climate, uh, of course, we are doing our, our climate law. It's a discussion now going on and, and we have the same. But I think also comparing notes in, in kind of the the regulatory matters and on the financial things and then in the agenda in general. Great. How about John? Is there something that uh, that you admire about Finland in terms of climate policies? Yeah, well, certainly um, <clears throat> your ambitious target to be uh, climate neutral by 2035 is something that, you know, is really helpful for us because obviously the UK is a, is a, is a larger economy and, and, and in some ways a, a more complex economy. So seeing how you achieve climate neutrality will give us clues to how we can get there ourselves. The other thing that we really need to learn from Finland is about your housing sector, um, because we've made big strides in reducing emissions from power generation in the UK. Uh, we can see a way forward on transport with our, our policy on zero emission vehicles, but housing is an issue where the UK really needs to, to, to work hard to get our emissions to zero. Many of us in the UK, you know, we have these beautiful old villages and beautiful towns with lots of old housing. But housing, my house is 200 years old. So it's not designed to be efficient. It's designed, <laughs> it comes from another era. <laughs> so how do we take it? How do we make our housing stock uh, carbon neutral is something we really need to grasp, uh, grapple with. Um, so I think there's a lot we can learn from 
from Finland and others in terms of you know efficient housing and the latest technology for, for making homes more more climate friendly. Has there been a significant moment in your careers when you really felt that climate diplomacy can make a difference? I feel that everything I do as a climate ambassador, it might be sometimes quite significant, uh, like uh, negotiations this week with the Green Climate Fund and, and approve a big project in, in in one country. But I think it's equally big thing when I do something in my everyday life. I liked Greta Thunberg. had a very small book I found in the bookstore, and, and the title of it was that nobody's too small to make a difference. And I think that was a very good statement in a way that uh, any of my climate uh, acts, what I do as a climate ambassador, they are not too small. Even if Finland is a small player, we are not a big emitter. We can be a big example with our carbon neutrality target 2035. Uh, be proud of your actions and, and, and do them for the nature and, and, and for, for the climate change. What about John? Yeah, I'm generally very optimistic at the moment um, yeah. because f- for two reasons. One is is sort of build on what Jan said. You, you don't need everyone to make a difference. Uh, it was pointed out to me by a Danish colleague when I was in Copenhagen recently that actually, essentially, three countries have essentially proved offshore wind technology for the rest of the world, something that is economically viable. So the UK, uh, Netherlands, and Denmark sort of responsible at least until recently for the vast majority of offshore wind development in the world and that brought the costs down from you know by over 70% over the last decade that's a really encouraging thing but i suppose more importantly there's this shift i was probably amongst the first generation of students to learn about climate change at university when it, the science was still sort of um, becoming accepted But now, myself and my peers, we're we're the, we're the we're sort of the cohort who are holding the senior positions in government now. And there's a, a generation of people in place who've who've long accepted the science of climate change and want to make a difference. And then we all have children uh, who are busy telling us, "Dad, come on, you've got to sort this problem out." I don't want you know. Listen to what mm-hmm. Greta Thunberg says. So we, you know, I'm very optimistic about the fact that you know, this is there's this generational shift and and that um, increasingly around the world you see politicians just accept the fact that yes climate change is happening and we have to try and limit the extent of it. Jan you mentioned uh, small actions and that is actually our final question for you both what is your everyday climate action? For the moment uh, and I, it's a big action I think it's I'm not traveling to Brussels every second week for a climate meeting I do it from my home and I think it's uh, It's become more rational in our our work as climate uh, diplomats. Mm-hmm. So I think it's that's kind of the big climate action that I've I've learned and I want to take with me from this difficult time period. Good. How about you, John? Um, well, I I've got solar panels on my house, um, and I'm now saving my pennies so that I can exchange my uh, my boiler, which runs on oil. Uh, for one that runs uh, for a heat pump that runs on the electricity that the solar panels produce. So um, I'm saving my pennies for that. (laughs) (laughs) Good. Thank you to both of you for joining us for this podcast. This was Hello Climate Calling. Thank you for listening. You can find our podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts, among others. If you like what you're hearing, please share our podcast with your friends and colleagues. (laughs) 